here's a situation that I'm guessing has happened to you at least once in your lifetime. You are watching TV with someone elderly and an intimate scene or a public service message endorsing the use of condoms comes on screen. You change the channel or you all hold your breath, each person looking in a different direction of the room, waiting for it to be over, only breathing properly when it has stopped. The cause for this awkwardness is no mystery to us. In India, sex is not something we talk about or even acknowledge. Hi there, you're listening to Unviral, the podcast where we tackle that dangerous combination of the two kinds of virality, misinformation about health. I'm Parvati Mohan, production lead at Factly, and in this episode, we look at myths about sexual and reproductive health. The discomfort around sex means that it is often seen as only a procedure to be followed by a married man and woman to have a child. And when sex is seen in that narrow light, the people that get left in the dark are unmarried people of all sexual orientations. As a society, we do not acknowledge the fact that unmarried people have sex or are in any way sexually active and that it is important to include them in the conversation on sexual health. Everyone from families to the medical system to the education system is guilty of this exclusion. Speaking about the medical system in particular is Dr. Nivedita Manokaran, a dermatologist and venerologist from India working as a clinician in sexual and reproductive medicine and HIV medicine in Sydney, Australia. These days, people are not getting married young because most of them want to establish a career, establish their goals. So a lot of people are getting married in their 30s. So considering that, you know, one it's expecting or even saying that we believe that people from the time of 13 of attaining monarchy to a time of 30 are actually not engaged in sexual activity, I think is the biggest denial one can actually do. So what I'm saying is if you do not want to accept it, then you're not able to ask people the right questions. Then you're not able to provide them the right care. It is interesting that Dr. Nivedita brings up this issue of asking the right questions. Because in India, doctors who want to find out a person's sexual history don't ask if they are sexually active and instead ask if they are married. Obviously, this question is inadequate as it makes too many misguided assumptions about the person's sexual activity based on their marital status. Clearly then, in sexual healthcare, doctors need to be asking if a person is sexually active rather than if they are married. This will, of course, be followed up with other important questions. Dr. Nivedita takes us through some of these. So when a person, young person comes to a doctor, let's say with some kind of genital symptoms with a parent or anything like that, I was taught to recognize their symptoms, to investigate the symptoms and to give them the best possible treatment. So we're all very good at it. We do that really, really well. But what really needs in a delicate topic like sexual health is actually, is your treatment or is your care finished at that point? Definitely not because you've missed a whole lot of important things that could be asked, that could be done. For example, you did not ask her if it was consensual sex or not, in which case you could have screened a sexual assault or a sexual abuse and 
you failed to do that if you didn't ask the question. Um, the second thing is you want to know if she's got gonorrhea or chlamydia or whatever, does the partner have the same STI? Is he going to get treated or is she going to keep getting infected and end up having PID? The third of all, is there domestic violence? Is there any kind of fear? You did not address what is your contraception that you're using. Could you fall pregnant? And if you do, what is your plan? So you haven't addressed any of this, which means you've missed to you know, prevent and avoid uh, you know, unwanted pregnancies, uh, abortions, terminations, and also deaths due to these illegal and unwanted um, abortions. Not acknowledging the fact that unmarried people are sexually active means that they often have limited or no access to information about the best contraceptive methods. And this means that they often fall prey to misinformation either from the internet or from friends and family who are not medically qualified. This is a wide range. Some people will tell them that condoms are not effective, others will say that properties are unsafe to put inside your body, and yet others will say that the morning-after pill is the only effective method. Another prevalent myth about contraception is that withdrawing the penis from the vagina before ejaculation is safer than all these methods. This has been debunked by healthcare professionals across the world several times, and yet, the myth persists. Adding on to these voices is Ms. Karishma Swaroop, a certified sexuality educator who actively busts myths about sex through social media, among other platforms. The withdrawal method is definitely one thing that people think works, you know, because theoretically it's like, oh, I just need to pull out and that's it. Don't need to go out, buy medicines, don't need to talk to other people about this, don't need to be in any other situations, right? It's just between me and my partner. But the fact is the withdrawal method has a very high failure rate for many reasons. And it's just not a reliable method of contraception. It is just like maybe 70% effective, if at all, which is a very, very low percentage if someone is firmly trying to not get pregnant. And the other thing that exists is the plan B pill or like emergency contraception. A lot of times people uh, will go buy emergency contraception over the counter because it's easily available and then just be taking the pill every time they have sex. And again, that comes from a place of lack of awareness because something like the emergency contraception pill has a very high dose of hormones and can be harmful to someone's body if they're taking it very frequently and not really consulting any doctor about it. And the third thing is that people think that oral contraception or the daily pill has a huge amount of side effects. And for some people, yes, it can have side effects. But largely speaking, there are hundreds of pills available. And if someone is consulting a doctor, which they should because it's a prescription medication, um, you should be able to come back to the doctor and say, hey, I'm having these side effects. I need a different type of pill. But people think, okay, my friend had one side effect. That means even I'll have the same side effect, right? But like every person's body is so different and will react differently to different types of medication. And then there's copper tea, there's IUDs. I've even heard doctors share misinformation about IUDs. And I think it's just part of it is that there's just such strong associations around, you know, like 
oh, if we take a contraceptive or if we insert some type of hormonal birth control, our bodies will get fat or we will be prone to cancer or other types of issues. But uh, it really is a question of finding what works for you. But there's also, of course, our good old condoms, which are also really effective um, when it comes to preventing pregnancy. Almost 97% effective compared to 70% with the withdrawal method. So even if someone just uses a condom, they are greatly reducing their chance of getting pregnant. Let us now look at the two basic types of contraception. One that goes over the body, like the condom, and the other that goes inside, like copperties. Let us go back to Dr. Nivedita first on the question of condoms, as they are the cheapest and most easily available form of contraception. If somebody complains that condoms has really much side effects, that's like a joke. It's the most safest and cheapest and easily available form of contraception. Probably there's a small percentage of people who could be allergic to latex and for which you have latex-free condoms as well available. So I think that is the most easy and safe thing that you can have. Use And that is the only thing that protects you against STIs and it also does fantastic contraception. So condoms definitely, um, you know, is a go-go for me and that is an easily sold contraception. I think where the problem arises is when a youngster has to walk through a supermarket to the condom aisle and pick a box of condom or lubricant and walk to the uh, front counter and get it billed standing in line with the other people who are probably, you know, giving the looks, talking the talk. And I think that is where the problem arises. And I think that is what is the barrier uh, for people to uh, be using condoms. And it's hard for us to change the attitude of the population of 1 billion. So, you know, it's hard to say, don't look at me like this, don't say this, don't see that. So can we make condoms and lubricants more available in more common places? You know, like a lot of our gynecological clinics, sexual health clinics, and all these places have bowls of condoms and lubes uh, in the waiting room, in the sitting area, uh, in the coffee area, and things like that. And there's also like we place plenty of brown bags, you know, all over the place, so you don't have to flash your condoms. So if contraception is easily available and not judged, probably people will be using it much more uh, than they use it these days, along with lot of lot of education. We now return to the myths about intrauterine devices or IUDs that Miss Swaroop mentioned earlier especially the property. Dr. Nivedita tells us why there is a lot of resistance to its usage and debunks the popular myths around this form of contraception. I think there's a lot of myth about IUDs or copper teas saying that if you use these things, they will, there's a problem in the future to fall pregnant or it will affect your fertility, which is absolutely not correct. That's incorrect. IUDs or copper teas or the implant is not something that will affect your fertility in future. In fact, recurrent terminations, pelvic inflammatory disease secondary to STIs is something which is the leading cause of infertility in India. We have to educate many people to go and be able to see doctors and we also have to educate about contraception uh, morning after pill you know the emergency contraceptions we have to start using IUDs where you can use it for 5 to 10 years for contraception and you do not want to have any unwanted pregnancy which can actually be done straight away if somebody has had unprotected sex because copper IUDs can be used as emergency contraception 
and they also last for 10 years. If you feel like you don't like it, you want to remove it, you go back to your gynecologist and they will remove it for you straight away. And usually your cycle and your ovulation and everything, you know, comes back in the next cycle. And it's usually pretty easy to fall pregnant after you've been on one of these contraceptions. So I think this kind of education is very, very important. And removal of the fear that contraception is going to do harm to their fertility is also very important. Not knowing about good contraception leads to people having unprotected and unsafe sex, which then leads to two undesirable outcomes, unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections or STIs. And because sex itself is taboo, there is naturally not enough open conversation about these topics either. In case of unwanted pregnancies, this means that young women who get pregnant and are not ready to have a baby have to resort to unsafe abortion practices. This works at two levels. On the one hand, they are not aware of the best methods of termination because they find the medical system unapproachable. On the other, they are not aware of their rights to abortion. Dr. Nivedita talks about the role the medical community plays in this situation. It's easy for me to say how these youngsters have to seek help and better choices. To be honest, we are talking about a young person who is vulnerable, who has not had any information about contraception and who has fallen pregnant in a society which is going to judge her, stigmatize her and mock her and probably even demoralize her for the fact that she had sex. So in that society, in that kind of a society, rather than tell an individual how she has to do the safe thing, we have to make the society look safer for her, isn't it? We have to educate a whole ra- a whole society as to how we can make it accessible for a young person to access contraception so that they don't fall pregnant. And even if they do, how we make it possible for them to say, you know, this has happened and I, this is what I would like to do. And bring a non-judgmental society, a safe society, a confidential medical care. Uh, all of this is very important. So I think we have to work a long way in things like that in order to be able to bring change in abortions and bring about safe abortions rather than targeting on a youngster who was vulnerable and who fell pregnant. As an educator who works with people on the ground, let us hear what Ms. Swaroop has to say about women's rights to get their pregnancies terminated in India. It's hard, right? Because people who are under 18, if they're engaging in sexual activity, whether they're doing it with a young person or not, it's against the law, right? And I think that's what makes it really hard for young people to access abortion care or health care around their reproductive health. Because by law, a doctor would have to report if someone under 18 was pregnant. And I think that that's a good law because the fact is the age of consent is 18. But it becomes a larger question of are we still creating space for those people to come forward safely and have these conversations and have trusted adults in their lives who they can talk to about these things. So there are some newer age startups, for example, and there are like crowdsourced lists of gynecologists who will not be judgmental towards people, right? And I think that is the first step to like help people connect with doctors who will not judge them and who will be able to provide them with care. The second thing is uh, sometimes people seem to think abortion itself might be illegal, which is totally a myth. In India, we don't have that issue. And I think that's another reason why uh, people seem to feel inclined to go to crack doctors and stuff because there's just not enough knowledge around the fact that people can go to a doctor and ask for an abortion. 
Earlier, I mentioned that the lack of knowledge on good contraception leads to two outcomes, unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections. We have addressed the problem of unsafe abortion methods. Let us now turn to STIs. Growing up, our parents, relatives and teachers told us that we should not drink contaminated water, that we should always wash fruits and vegetables, and that we should avoid street food, because these can all be sources of disease. We are encouraged to get tested when we have fevers, cough and cold. With COVID-19 taking over the world, we sometimes get tested even when we have no symptoms but have been exposed to someone who had the virus. But we see a double standard about such precautions and testing when it comes to STIs. Very few people are told that they should use condoms and dental dams to avoid contracting an infection. And even fewer people are aware that they have to get tested for STIs regularly if they are sexually active. Dr. Nivedita tells us why this is an important practice and who is most vulnerable. So most of the times people are approaching or coming to a sexual health physician only when they start having symptoms because they're freaking out because they know something is wrong. However, I always keep telling people STIs are mostly asymptomatic. They don't have any symptoms. You know, 70-80% of the times, chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, none of these show symptoms for a very, very, very long time. So what we have actually have to work and target towards is uh, educating people to get asymptomatic testing, which means if you are sexually active, um, you need to get regular testing at least once or twice a year. And especially if you're someone who is having unprotected sex, then you probably have to do more STI screening. And if you are someone who's having unprotected sex with high-risk population, when I say high-risk population, this will probably include, you know, gay men, sex workers, people who are having sex with sex workers, um, injecting drug users, uh, people who have sex with trans men and women, and then trans men and women itself. So there are some categories of people who are at a higher risk of acquiring STIs. And if you think you are having uh, sex with one of them or you are one of them, the chances that you could acquire an STI is a little bit more likely. So go more frequently for STI testing. And that is the only way you pick infections early, prevent complications and prevent life-threatening you know, uh, scenarios. So this is something that I really want to encourage people. But unfortunately, symptoms is the thing that usually makes people rush to a doctor. Dr. Nivedita mentioned homosexual men and people who have sex with sex workers as being among the high-risk groups for STIs. This puts the spotlight on men and their role in the conversation on sexual health. As important as it is to educate women about their rights to their bodies, it is also necessary to acknowledge men as important stakeholders. Men need to understand contraception and abortion so they can be part of the decision-making process. But also, they need to know about good sexual health practices in the interest of their own good health. So, we need to understand if men seek medical help on sexual health. Dr. Nivedita chimes in with her experience on male patients engaging with sexual health. In my experience, I do see a lot of gay men uh, who are absolutely on top of their screens, uh, testing, uh, prevention strategies and a lot of things. So, I don't particularly think Men don't want to get tested or don't want to be engaged in sexual health care at all. I do see a lot of um, the times heterosexual men shying away a little bit. But again, I think they are worried about people judging about uh, their character. 
it's not about them not being a man but i think it's about how we associate sex to someone's character has a big effect you know in people accessing sexual health care so because that is always looked at something of low morality and i think that is what makes a big difference you know so if people are not engaging in care that's because they are worried that you know what are other people going to think about me are they going to judge me other than that men are fine they usually engage in care and if they do and if they know that they are meeting a you know confidential service non-judgmental clinician we are able to help them for what they want and you know give them the best service and we also kind of encourage them to tell other people as word of mouth you know to get more people for testing more people for counseling and a whole bunch of other things so i think it's about how we engage people in care dr nivedita practices medicine in australia In her conversation with us she told us that the people there are more open to talking about sexual health than the people in India so how are things different for men in India miss varup shares her experience on this i find that the i get so many dms from men and a lot of them are this place of like insecurity around is my penis large enough am i lasting long in bed am i is my penis the right shape these questions which are very personal to them but also in society linked to masculinity itself so they'll be like okay if you're a man if you're manly you have a big penis if you're manly you're going to last super long in bed or whatever and these kind of societal norms translate into the way that people feel about their bodies and i think that's a big issue because it makes men feel really ashamed of even asking for help when they need help and they feel afraid to go to a doctor or approach a doctor i have full grown adults in my dms saying being like please help me i need to speak with a doctor and and my response is always i'm not a doctor like you have to speak with a doctor to get you treatment for whatever issue you're facing i think it become culture of silence for them which is ironic because society does afford them more agency and more power when it comes to sex things like oh he's a man he's going to have sexual feelings or oh, he's a man he's going to masturbate or oh, he's a man he's going to be attracted to people those are stereotypes that exist but at the same time there's not as much open conversation around it putting all judgment and squeamishness aside we need to acknowledge a few basic facts people both married and unmarried have sex This means that these people should have access to reliable resources that teach them how they can have safe enjoyable sex. And we do hear this term sex education thrown around quite often. But what should the nature of such education be? This is what Dr. Nivedita has to say about this. There's a lot of things that we have learned for whatever reasons for many many centuries and it's important to unlearn some things. that are not right that don't suit us in today's world it's okay it's okay to unlearn it's okay to change sometimes when you listen to things one time it's hard to change you might find it debatable but if you listen to things over and over over the period of time i think it has a effect where it does make you feel like oh that's true we've been thinking this way for a very long time so in that way slowly unlearning certain things can happen but it takes time we're talking about hundreds of years of shame that has been imparted on us so it's going to take time for us to unlearn those things let us also listen to miss swaroop's thoughts on what she considers good sex education many multi country studies have been done uh, comparing different factors and one of the factors which correlates with a lower rate of teen pregnancy is good sex education some people have this misconception that if we talk to kids about sex 
and when i'm saying kids i mean teenagers people under 18 they think okay if we talk to young people about sex then they're going to go out and have more sex that's not necessarily true it just simply means that they're going to be more aware and informed and make better decisions about their sexual life and that includes contraception and teenage pregnancy as well and i think there needs to be more awareness around contraceptives because the simple fact is that when someone is young they are more likely to take risks and engage in risky behaviors without considering the consequences that's the first thing the second thing is that there are so there's such a range of contraception available but due to lack of firstly education but secondly lack of access to healthcare so let's say that a young person who has a uterus wants to go and get birth control pills it is really difficult if they are under a certain age or i would say even like over if they're over 18 even then it is really hard to go to a gynecologist and just ask for a birth control prescription or even have a conversation about appropriate methods of contraception because there's so much stigma around unmarried people having sex and that's why education is so important to just give everyone the tools and resources to make those decisions for themselves and be able to have those conversations openly with the healthcare provider or with whoever is in their life i think sex education needs to start from kindergarten and needs to go on throughout the entire school period till class 12 and in college uh, because the fact is that most of india's population does go through some type of school and if we make sex education a mandatory part of school curriculums it will become something that everyone is exposed to and has access to we want to also make it accessible in other avenues because if someone is not going to school or does not have access to sex education at school they should be able to come home google it and find reliable information but unfortunately that's not the case at the moment and 50% of the population has smartphones and a lot of young people will access pornography more easily than they'll ever find good sex ed and that's why making it accessible online making it accessible within school systems within college systems as well acknowledging the fact that young people have sexual agency and autonomy is really important and i'm not saying that people under 18 should be having sex but just saying that they should have the knowledge and have the resources and have access to the education they need the stigma around sex leads to several undesirable consequences from misinformation around the right contraception to people being afraid to seek help which in turn leads to unsafe abortion and a spread in stis the solution is simple good thorough sex education for all and this solution can be implemented once we as a society let go of our inhibitions around sex which is after all an entirely natural thing of course there are many stakeholders involved from the medical system to the education system to families and importantly the individual each one of us a starting point would be to educate yourself about the best practices by engaging with trustworthy resources We'll leave a few links in the description that can help kickstart your journey. Do share this episode so that more people can join the conversation. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and remember to unviral. Unviral by Factly is researched by Nandita Kalidas, written, hosted, and produced by Parvati Mohan, and edited and designed by Jyoti Jiru and Suresh D. Thank you for listening.